Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda and I'm here with Laurie Tipton. Hi, Laurie. Hi. Good to be Hi. here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. So Laurie uh, is here to talk about her personal experience with MDMA-assisted therapy. Uh, so you, you took part, you were the first person in New Orleans who took part in uh, MAPS tri uh, clinical trials uh, using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So we can talk a little bit more about that, right? So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what happened. And then since then you became an advocate for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, as well as you, you're currently uh, uh, an executive director of uh, New Orleans uh, Psychedelic Society. That's correct. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so that's great, great. I'm, I'm really glad to have you here. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I really wanted to talk to somebody who, uh, who has been in this therapy, who has done this therapy, and hear the first person account, especially in the context of the clinical trials, <clears throat> MAPS clinical trials. Um, but I, I was kind of a little bit reluctant, you know, because these kinds of conversations on a public forum can be can be kind of tricky. And and uh, and um, and then I found you, and I I noticed that you have talked in public, that you're an advocate for this therapy, and you have talked in public. So that has made my uh, podcaster hat feel quite comfortable. Good. So. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so I, I'm glad to have you here. And I think we, before we start, we should probably do a little bit of a uh, content warning. This, uh, this, uh, this podcast is not for children, so uh, not for minors. As well as if um, if you find it difficult to uh, hear some um, uh, some accounts of uh, traumatic experiences that Laurie might or might not, I'm not sure where, where you're going to go with this, be sharing, f and you decide to listen to it, uh, please feel free to skip those sections. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Great. Hey, Laurie, so, um, I mean, from the logical point of view, point of view I was thinking it would be good to, to talk about sort of before the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, then talk about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and then sort of after MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And then maybe I was thinking at the end we can, we can talk about some general sort of issues uh, related to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and how you understand it and, and a, a greater context. Yes. What do you think about that structure, more or less? I think that's fine. I think you know, cr chronologically usually makes sense for a lot of people to understand this stuff. So that's great. Great, great. So... Do you want me to just start? Over, you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, why don't you tell us what, sure. what, has led you, what has led you to find that, that, that therapy, what has happened before? So I had suffered with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, for over a decade of my life. Um, and for me, that was, it displayed in a lot of different ways. Um, some of the classic symptoms, like I had negative mood alterations, a heightened startle response, um, a lot of intrusive traumatic memories, insomnia, avoidance behaviors. Um, and the biggest one for me was probably hypervigilance. Like I was very afraid all the time. And 
it seemed as though these things progressed in my life, uh, dependent upon uh, numerous tragedies that happened. And so, yes, I just want to reiterate a content warning here um, before I start kind of talking about some of those tragedies. Um, what, like many things happened to me kind of in succession that built my PTSD. It made those symptoms much stronger. So uh, the first one would be the first main event, I guess you would say, was in 2005, right before Hurricane Katrina. I went to my mother's house and I discovered her body and the body of two the bodies of two women oh, that she had Jesus. killed. And so, oh, Jesus, yeah, Lord. as one can imagine, um, it was just completely life-shattering. I, I don't know how else to ex, ex, like explain an event like that. Um, and that was, like I said, that was in 2005, about a month and a half before Hurricane Katrina hit. And so, as you know, we can say that the, the whole Gulf Coast region, region was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. And you know, New Orleans, where I'm located and where this was located, was part of that area. And in the process of that, there was such collective loss and collective grief that I never was able to really face my own grief concerning the loss of my mother and the two women that she had killed, who were both extremely important women in my life. Um, and I think that just I've always been a very um, driven individual and considered myself intelligent and thought that I could just think my way out of these things. Um, and that would be, I would say, the biggest trauma that really I felt a, a huge shift in the way that I started reacting in the world. I will add that before that happened in 1999, um, my brother overdosed and passed away. And I was very young at the time when that happened. Um, well, I consider myself young. I was 20 years old. And um, I, I definitely grieved that and I felt uh you know, immense sadness, but I felt a responsibility for my mother who had always been mentally unstable. Um, and in that time frame, she, she became more and more mentally unstable until she ultimately, you know, murdered two women and killed herself. Um, after that, Katrina hit, and then I returned to New Orleans. And in 2006, I was raped by someone that I cared very deeply for. Um, I became pregnant from that rape and had an abortion. And so it was just one trauma after the other. And seeking an abortion in the South is a traumatic event in its own respect, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, it was just a pylon of so many different traumas and my inability to access my feelings around them, um, my fear to access my feelings around them, just really pushing any feeling I had down and trying to either cognitively work my way out of it or engaging in risk-taking behaviors, you know, hedonistic pleasures, drug abuse, you name it, just to not feel the feelings around the, these things that were coming up. Um, and so because of that, like I said earlier, that my PTSD manifested in all these ways. And what really happened, um, and I didn't truly recognize this until I was accepted into the trial, was just how much I had become less of myself and I had become more of a manifestation of, of these symptoms of PTSD. And, you know, I was very afraid of life and I was very um, on edge all the time. I never felt like I could, could relax, you know, ever. Um, and, and that in itself was what saw, like made me seek treatment. And I consider myself an extremely privileged individual over those, you know, that decade plus of suffering. I was able to, I had a good job. I was, you know, I was always quote unquote functioning. And because of that, I sought out treatment. And I mean, I tried it all, <laughs> 
you know, which is one of the reasons why I'm such a big supporter of psychedelic therapy and, and not to disqualify anyone else's experience. And I am not a doctor. I'm not here to say what is going to work a hundred percent for anyone. But for me, I had tried traditional, you know, um, antidepressants, SSRIs. I had tried anti-anxiety medications. Um, I had seen several different types of therapists. And then I had also seen like an internist, a dietitian. I'd been rolfed, I'd been massaged, I'd done Reiki, um, I'd meditated. I became a certified yoga teacher in the process of trying to really wow. cure this PTSD yes. or at least find um, relief from the symptoms. Um, and while those things at times did produce some level of relief, nothing was longstanding for me. Um, and it was extremely defeating. And perhaps people who have PTSD who are listening can relate to this. It's extremely defeating and it's very hard when a person comes to you and says, this is the thing that's going to work for you. And it yes. doesn't work for you. And it doesn't. And you try and you keep trying different things. Right. And and the bigger thing truly for me was also the issue that I, on top of all of these, um, you know, bad negative things, you know, like hypervigilance, startle response, insomnia, um, dysfunction in general, I also really lost the ability to feel joy, like true joy. And mm -hmm. that was when... I definitely, those moments when I would really feel that loss would be when I wanted to kill myself, you know, and suicidal ideation was something I lived with and, and knew that I had to um, be aware that that was a possibility for me. Um, so fast forward to the, to the trial, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes. um, in 20, in late 2017, I was scrolling social media and I saw an ad, uh, for a maps trial that was happening locally here in new Orleans, Louisiana. And I applied and, um, you know, I really truly didn't think that I would be accepted because I live in an area that is inundated with trauma. Like I, I don't know a single person who doesn't have some form of PTSD, um, and I felt extremely grateful and privileged to have been accepted into the trial. Um, and, you know, there is, a, there is, so to get into the, and I'm speaking specifically about my phase of the trial, which yeah. might not relate to everyone's experience in these trials. Right. Um, but for my phase, um, there was a level of psychometric testing that had to be done in order to be accepted into the trial. Um, and that was just to qualify a person as having diagnosable PTSD and to make sure that you as uh, the uh, the patient would be okay taking MDMA because, um, you know, it does have a um, methamphetamine component to it. So it might not be appropriate for all people that might have heart problems or something like that. So there were just physical screenings as well as some um, um, uh, psychological screenings that went into that. And once I was accepted into the, the study, the way that it works is there are several um, therapy sessions in between what we would call the medicine sessions. Right. Yeah. So, so for my, um, for the protocol for my, the, the, um, the trial that I was in, there were three medicine sessions. So there were three times that I was given MDMA, but in between those times, there were several therapy sessions leading up to and afterwards, which were considered integration sessions, mm -hmm. which would run anywhere from, you know, 90 minutes plus, depending on how long really we needed to be there to talk about mm -hmm. the stuff that came up. And so alone, just having that level of very focused therapy with a team, I had a team of a, a woman and a man um, who were excellent and just so loving and just so um, receptive to what I needed. Um, 
that alone, I think, was a beautiful thing. But really, the magic happens in the ability of what the MDMA allows a person mm -hmm. to access. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, my experience wholly in the trial was that it provided me a perspective that I could not get on my own before. Um, and that perspective was life-changing, if not life-saving for me. You know, I was able to come to so many self-realizations that allowed me to forgive myself and to forgive other people. Um, in general, I felt like I had just been seeing the world through dirty lenses and the process allowed those to be wiped clean. And I was able to interact with the world in a way that I hadn't been able to for, you know, over a decade. Um, and to me, uh, having done so many things before this, um, all of this was really revolutionary. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, do you have any questions, Derek, or do you want me to go into the specific sessions or what, well, what are you thinking? Yeah. I'm I'm sitting here in awe and silence, just thinking about your resilience, you know, and and how, and 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 just the experiences that you've uh, you've just relayed. Um, I, I I pretty much think I shouldn't be speaking right now; I should just be listening. But uh, there is um, the map. If if you just put the maps tri uh, maps trials in the contemporary context, so. For people who don't know, MAPS is a multidisciplinary association for psych psychedelic studies. And this is the organization that is conducting, currently conducting uh, clinical trials that will allow uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to become mainstream, most likely. The results are very promising right now. And, uh, and right now, uh, MAPS is doing phase three trials, which is the last phase uh, of of clinical trials, and uh, and th that therapy might be um, legalized in Canada and USA in two three years something like that. COVID has delayed that a little bit, and uh, so you were uh, a part of phase two trials, right? Or yes. The, yes. 2017, right? So that's uh, okay. So that's just to to give a little bit a little bit more. Uh, context and and then you said the dirty lenses right right here I, I I'm curious about about that what do you see the the dirt was and what was the clear glass that you you know how how would you could you unpack that that's uh, sure. said so many things there um well I'd love to just talk a little bit more about the revelations of what it was like to be in those sessions if that's okay with you as well for sure for sure yeah I'm, I'm totally open to hearing anything you feel comfortable sharing here sure so um, meeting with the therapy team initially, obviously, I was very interested in um, discussing and trying to reframe the ways that I was feeling around these particular traumas that had happened in my life, um, which is a really brave thing to do. Because honestly, if somebody's like, I'm going to give you a psychedelic drug, and then you're going to talk about the worst moments of your life, you might yeah. be like, no, that sounds no, like <laughs> exactly pass. <laughs> but for me, um, I was trying to keep a very open mind about this. Obviously, I was a little bit skeptical coming into it because I had tried so many things that had not really worked for me. Um, but I did feel that there was a level of care and um, self-direction within the therapy team that I really enjoyed. Um, nothing was forced there. So it wasn't like we had a progress 
you know, plan that we went into the sessions and we're like, we have to hit these different things. It was extremely client led. So I was the one determining what we were going to talk about, what was happening. Um, in the sessions leading up to and between the medicine sessions, so the ones where I was not on any substance, um, it was the typical talk therapy um, where we, I was able to uh, form a bond and become comfortable with the therapy team and also give them the backstory of the things that I had gone through in order for us to come up with a kind of a treatment plan, you know, a rough treatment plan of the things I wanted to accomplish in the therapy sessions. So these are called preparation sessions, technically, right? Preparation and integration sessions. So right. before preparation and in between, it's kind of integrating whatever. Integration the after, yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and I would love to add that, like, those sessions were so important to the overall meaning of this and for me to really feel the fullest extent of what was happening in those medication or drug sessions. Um, to have those integration sessions was paramount to really being able to carry what I learned with me into the world. Um, you know, and that that is the caveat to this is like uh, MDMA is an incredible molecule and allows like it's magical truly what it does to the brain, the way that it affects the different systems, the way that it, um, you know, makes your fear center kind of not offline, but slow down um, the way that it brings a lot of energy, or you could see uh, like, uh, you know, on an MRI, you see all this stuff happening in the prefrontal cortex. So it's bringing up all these memories and allowing you to feel things. Um, that's incredible, but really it needs, like, in my opinion, just because of my experience, like it being paired with this therapy, was so crucial mm -hmm. for me being able to really get into the, the depth of these traumas and work with them. Um, right. And so, yeah, basically those sessions were just, you know, you, I couldn't have just gone in and taken the drug and been like, okay, here's my trauma, fix me. Um, yeah. it's, it's unfortunate. I wish that was how it worked, right? I wish it was that just that easy for all of us. Um, but that isn't how it is. And so um, we did these preparation sessions and then going into the first uh the first medication session, you know, I was definitely nervous and uh, I took the MDMA and within the protocol of, of the clinical trial I was in, people were invited to lie down. I was in a kind of like a, a space that had been, it was a therapy room that was very pleasant, you know, warm tones, a window with a tree. There was an accessible bathroom right there. Um, it was like a futon that converted into a bed. Um, and I had blankets and pillows. I could bring anything from home that might make me comfortable. Um, and they had a headset for me that played specific music that was from past psilocybin trials um, in order for me to listen to and an eye mask, and I was invited to take the medicine and then lie down, cover my eyes, put on the headset and go inward um, and just see where the journey would take me. Uh, I, I myself spent a lot of time in those sessions actually talking with the therapist. I found that my process was really heavy on uh, telling my story, reframing my story. I have had the privilege of talking to other people who have also been involved in these trials and many of them lay there with the headset and the eye shade and spend um, the majority of the time inward. I don't think there is, you know, quote unquote, a right way to do this. I think it really is dependent on the patient. Um, and that's what's so beautiful about the format of this is like the doctors aren't saying, no, 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 you have to lay down. This is the doctors are literally letting you as the patient guide the session which is, I mean, is very, um, it challenges traditional therapy in so many ways, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I had taken the medicine and I was laying there and trying to kind of focus, feeling some anxiety come up, just focusing on my breath. And before long, you know, what washed over me was a sense of feeling and presence that I hadn't felt in years. And um, it, it sounds, <laughs> it's hard, you know, these are, these experiences are hard to put into words and I'm probably going to tear up a little bit just talking about this, but um, it sounds so simple, but for somebody who like myself had blocked so much of my feelings and had blocked myself from, from, you know, just trying to protect myself, insulate myself to actually feel a feeling in my entire body was, I mean, it was incredible. It was so empowering. And that first session there wasn't even anything that necessarily was pertained specifically to these traumas. Um, one of the things that came up for me is I had this incredibly beautiful image of my brother and I playing in the snow as children, and I could feel just how how much fun that was. And just like the love of that memory was something that wasn't just in my head, but was in my entire being. And it was just, it was priceless to feel that because it was something that I hadn't felt I don't know, in in so long, you know, and something that I felt very, uh, I was struggling in my life to be able to feel those things. At that time, I, I, now, right now, I have a son who's seven. And when I started this trial, um, my son was four. And so there was a lot of those there was a lot of grief there for me because I was beginning to accept how I had been present for my child, but I hadn't been truly present for my child because I was so afraid. Um, And that was one of the main things that like in the first session, that was kind of dipping my toe into the water and realizing that these feelings are available to me, which on its own was mind blowing. I mean, to me, I was like, that's worth the price of admission (laughs) right there. Um, And from there, as the sessions built, they only got more... um, really revolutionary for me is is a way that I can look at I can say it um and once again I I have to stress like this is just my experience and gosh I'm so grateful for this experience um but I don't want to pretend like this is the experience for everyone who does this although I I will say the majority of people that I have spoken to um have all had radical positive changes since this therapy So, um, so yeah, so after that, once again, we kind of debriefed and talked and had some time to really talk about this disconnect that I had felt. And this is back to your question about the glasses, like this was part of it, right? Like I was seeing the world through the lens of fear. So Mm -hmm. I felt like if like in my mind, there was like, if I was to go to make any decision, there would be a stop sign before the decision. And it would be like joy to the right, fear to the left. And no matter what it was, I would always take a left. So no matter what was presented to me, I was always going to be fearful about it. I couldn't turn that off. Um, And, and seeing that it was like these, this moment of embodiment feeling allowed me to realize like, oh, you have been in this weird pattern of always being afraid. You don't, have to actually be afraid all the time um and once again these are very subtle things and the experience is different you know my quote-unquote psychedelic experience which i will add like mdma isn't a true psychedelic like i didn't see any hallucinations i didn't have like synthonesia or anything like that but i mean it is 
uh, an intactogen or an pathogen and a psychedelic in the sense that like it is an altered state. And for a person suffering from PTSD, um, I think it is one of the most powerful medicines in order to access these memories without being completely overwhelmed with the fear and the shame that can come along with them. Um, and that's what we planned on for the, for the other sessions. So we kind of, in my three sessions, really chosen by me strategically because I'm like a, you know, I'm from New Orleans. So I'm like, give me the highest dose you can. <laughs> like, let's get into this. If yes. I'm going to take these drugs, we're going to get down to the, the, yeah. the, the dirty, right? Do you, do you, by the way, do you remember the dosage? Thank you. Thank you for oh, sharing. Yeah. It's so, so moving. It's so moving to listen to you. Laurie. The, the dosage is increased. So the first time I took, a, so each time I would be offered a, a pill at the very beginning, and then I would be offered a supplementary dose 90 minutes in that I could choose to take yes or no. Yeah. And I always mm. took the supplementary dose. And so the <laughs> first, the very first time I yeah. took a total of um, 120 milligrams. So 80 and 40. Yes, 80 time. and 40 the first okay. time. And then the second time I took... Um, Oh, I think I, I think the second time, I know the third time I took a hundred and, um, 160 was my, was the, like the third time. I think the second time I took something in between them, I might've taken 140. It, it slowly progressed, but I, okay. I, I know that like at the end, I took the highest that they were offering, um, yeah. in the trials, uh, yeah. which, you know, honestly, for me, I wouldn't necessarily say that I felt like a huge difference in the dosage, um, yeah. because the therapy itself was so, um, intensive that I think the combination of the two, it wasn't like one just kind of blew my socks off, if that makes sense. Every time yeah. I felt like my socks were being blown off. Every time, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it was about one month apart for the dosing sessions, yes, for were, the medicine yeah. sessions? Mm -hmm. But between like four to six weeks apart, um, in New Orleans, we had, I think it was a, you know, at our schedule wasn't as direct because we had like Mardi Gras and things falling in there. So there was just, but yes, it followed the protocol of however many weeks it was supposed to be apart. Um, and yeah, so then in, in the second session, like I, you know, within the therapy team, we decided that uh, it would be interesting, I guess is a good word for me to try to revisit some of these more painful memories while under the influence of MDMA to see how, uh, you know, what, what would happen. And, and one of the things I was most interested in is specifically relating to my mother's death. There were moments in that discovery scene for me that were completely missing. So it was almost oh, as okay. if someone had I a VHS see. tape and kind of yeah. just cut out just sections. Cut some pieces out. And no matter what I would do, and I mean, I'm talking, you know, I had done this in therapy for years. Yes. Um, I couldn't bring that up. It was just gone. There were, it didn't exist for me. Um, and I couldn't even like pretend like I knew it, if that makes sense. Like I yes, couldn't even yes. be like, this is what it was. It was like gone. No, gone um, and so I was really interested in like, what would happen if I kind of went into that memory within the session to see what would, would emerge. So and in your, in your integration slash preparation for the next dosing session, you and your therapist, you have kind of talked about it and decided ahead of time before the dosing session that you're going to go into a little bit uh, of an, a kind of conscious, consciously you're going to go into a, a little bit more of an exposure, uh, towards those some of those traumatic, traumatic oh definitely 
and once again, this was so dependent on the trust I had built with this team. Right. You know, right. I, I referred to, I had Dr. Sherry's, Dr. Sherry and Dr. Ray were my two. And um, Sherry and Ray were just incredible. And I considered them my trauma doulas, you know, mm -hmm. because they were there to help me nice. really just kind of like birth this trauma mm -hmm. and deal with mm -hmm. it and completely support me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in, in my, in my retrospect writing about this, I said, it reminded me of like, you know, poltergeist where they tie the rope around and they can pull the, the, the lady out, you know, that was them. They were there to like pull me out if things got too bad. Um, and once again, this was even the decisions we were making in these integration sessions, everything was still up to me in the medication sessions. Right, right. No one was forcing me yeah. to do anything, which yeah. I think is important to stress because it's not like they're like all, everything that's decided on is something that I have consented to and something that I want. It's not like I'm a guinea pig and they're like, you're going to do this. It was right. very much client-led, um, really, truly beautiful. Um, and in, able, in, in doing that and in, 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 in so going into those memories within the second and third sessions, um, you know, one of the most miraculous things that happened for me was that I was able to remember fully um, those scenes oh. that I had never been able oh, to remember. Yeah. I mean, they were just completely there again which wow. which is you know completely mind-boggling in some ways to think that like our trauma can work it's hardwired so much in our brain it can actually repress things wow. to where they're and, and once again it was just clear as day and it wasn't like i was making it up and believing it it was just right. there you know just like i know who right. i am right now so yeah so one you know one of the mechanisms that uh that people talk about a lot with uh uh, MDMA-assisted therapy and uh, and trauma is is this kind of fear reduction mechanism where you can actually <clears throat> approach those memories and the fear you said it's not completely gone but it's it, the, the fear is is quite bearable and and you can easily approach those. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about the how that fear element uh, that anxiety element when you were approaching those memories and talking about these experiences and experiencing those memories fully as you say uh, in your in your body how, how this does that differ during your dosing session versus your experience before oh well i mean there's so many for one you know classically there's just the typical avoidance of usually discussing the, right. these things but then yeah. within therapy when i would tell these stories before i would tell them like a narrator of a film that it didn't happen to me i was so right. removed from them um right. so within the therapy within the mdma therapy sessions um there was just a complete embodiment so in remembering those things i was feeling within my body the yeah. feelings that came along with it but instead of them coming on so strong in um i guess the word would be like repulsive before like you know heart racing and you know just wanting to get out like feeling very afraid it was very different it was like my body was calm in a way that it hadn't been before and you know i guess what i could say is um mentally or not just physically in my body but also intellectually i was able to see those scenes through a different perspective um and in seeing those scenes through that perspective like beforehand you know me in that discovery i felt so much shame and so much guilt and fear that it was just overpowering for me and then going into it in these mdma sessions um 
I found so much self-compassion for, you know, I was just overwhelmed with just how, you know, sad the situation was. And it it became less of a horrific, terrifying, not that it isn't those things, but it became less of that and more of like a very sad situation. And, and with that self-compassion came compassion for my mother and not to say that like what she did was acceptable or but then i could understand what drove her to the point of how how she had reacted that way and i saw her not i didn't see this incident as just like the defining factor of her life but i saw this incident as like everything that led up to it and how it happened and 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 how so many things in her life just kind of like unfortunately pointed in this direction um and not to relieve her fully of the guilt, but there's just a lot of compassion that can come from seeing an individual mm-hmm. as not just one incident, but the whole, their whole being, who they were within their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the world and the world that she was growing oh, up in. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. You know, my mother grew up in a, a very extremely Catholic household and she was a lesbian and she was a closeted lesbian for most of her life. And she really like... I, it's so sad to me because if my mother had been born just 20 years later, I think her life would have been miraculously different just with the levels mm-hmm. of acceptance we found, you know, um, and, and all of that is very, it's very sad and very, um, it's something that once again, this a level of being able to empathize and see her as not just this this murderer, but as this beautiful woman who was my mother and who really did a lot of beautiful things in her life was something that like before I couldn't access any of that because I was just so terrified of this experience. You know, it had clouded everything else as is one would expect it to. Um, And yeah, I think that, you know, I realized that this disconnect that had developed between my brain and my body, like in those Mm -hmm. moments when I disassociated, Mm -hmm. became the disconnect between me and the world as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as I connected in those sessions back to my physical body and I embodied these emotions and let myself actually feel them, I reconnected with my world. I reconnected with my life in a way that was just like plugging it in, you know, um, and to me, that was, I mean, that's just incredibly life-changing. And, and, and through this process, like I've always, I'm a big fan of therapy in general, of talk therapy. Mm-hmm. I think it's very effective. Um, and I've always seen a talk therapist and I kept my same talk therapist through this process. And she was just, she's fully supportive of this type of therapy because she said what I had come to these realizations and these changes that I was able to incorporate, not just like having this experience and being like, Oh, well that was cool. I was tripping out and I felt good, but really incorporating it through those integration Mm -hmm. sessions into my life. She said that would typically have taken me decades, decades. Yes. 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 You know, and And have you done in your, in your, in your so-called talk therapy, have you done any sort of, you know, you'd call it technically interoceptive exposure or a focusing or sort of body focused oh, work? Definitely. I did a lot of different, um, you know, you've, you've done different. I did different modalities within within therapy, not specifically with the therapist that I have most recently, right. but throughout, yes, throughout that tenure, I, I've sought out all kinds of different... But because those fear responses of those traumatic, was... the trauma, trauma is so, so difficult to, to get in, to get there, to allow yourself to experience these, these uh, experiences are very automatic and very powerful. And it's almost like you do not have control over this avoidance response and over no. this, these defense mechanisms. Those defense mechanisms are 
at that stage are ruling you essentially in your life? Oh, totally. I, I mean, it was just completely unconscious behavior at times, you know, right. just in, and it wasn't until, you know, people around me would just either get frustrated enough to say like, you're doing this thing that I would yeah. even know that I was doing the thing, you know, whatever yeah. it was, yeah. which was always like, usually for me, which was some kind of hypervigilant behavior. Right. Um, and that's just, and hypervigilance specifically about safety, right? Oh, your personal safety so. and your daughter's safety, that kind of issue. Yeah, my, my son's safety, yes. Your definitely. son's safety, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah in, just, in general, just uh, always, you know, I worked as a bartender and if somebody would walk in, I worked in a beautiful boutique hotel, and if a customer would walk in and come walking up to the bar really fast, like my yeah. back of my mind would say, he's going to yes. kill me. Like, oh, yeah. Immediately you know, no, and like nobody else that I worked with would ever have <laughs> that kind of reaction. But that was legitimately the story in my mind would immediately say, this man's going to kill you, um, which, you know, th thankfully wasn't the case ever. But it was just like w I, I didn't question before the therapy, mm -hmm. before the psychedelic therapy. I didn't question why my brain said that. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? I just mm -hmm. accepted that this was how right. reality was. Um, right. And that in, in that in itself was just you know, once again, like completely mind blowing and life changing, right? Because if you have that perspective to step back from yourself and yes, say, yeah. oh, I am not just my thoughts or this is happening. It's a repetitive thought cycle that isn't serving me. Um, once again, these things were never, I was never able to do this before psychedelic therapy. I mean, yeah. I did all the stuff, the meditation and everything. And I think that those are great tools. But if you're like completely inundated with trauma, you can't access any of that. And that's right. where this therapy comes in. This therapy right. shines a light in the darkness. Yes. Um, you know, and, and, you know, for me, there, it was just, there were many things that happened within those therapy sessions um, that were just completely beautiful and 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 subtle you know um but were so meaningful for me and i think that's why also people who can lay down and listen to the music and have the eye mask on and maybe aren't talking through it are still mm -hmm. having just as powerful as an experience mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. for, yeah. for me yeah. it helped to reframe those stories verbally and your, and your traumatic experiences are well horrific as you know as as bad as it as it gets i'd say um but the same mechanisms in a, I see the same mechanisms in a smaller way, uh, pandemic everywhere. I, I, in myself, whenever I discover something that exactly the same mechanism in my clients, I'm a psychologist and a psychotherapist in my day job. So I see those in a, in a small way, those disconnections from yourself, those defense mechanisms, those protective mechanisms mm -hmm. at play, those unconscious protective mechanisms at play all the time all the time yeah. the disconnection from from the physical is pandemic it's it's just a, a, pretty much nearly everybody is uh to to some extent disconnected from their sensations their feelings they don't want the uncomfortable emotions that's just a that's what we don't want to feel discomfort. That's what people come to therapy for. I don't want to feel this, what I feel. And they've been trying not to feel this all their life. Oh, totally. I mean, the funniest thing is for me now in retrospect is like, I didn't truly believe I had PTSD until I joined this trial. Like I mm -hmm. knew I had this cluster of symptoms, but for me, 
there were a couple reasons why I didn't think I had it. Number one is because I always related it to people who had served in wars to veterans. And number two, after Katrina, we all in New Orleans, everyone was told we had PTSD. And so because to me, it was just this blanket thing. I was like, well, I don't actually have that because I can hold a job. I have a relationship. You know, I've been able to do these things that like you see sometimes media project this disorder as something that's so isolating. And for some people, it is very isolating and, and, and not to take away from that at all. But for me, because I was so, you know, highly functioning, I didn't think that I actually had it until I started the psychometric testing at the beginning. And it asked me like, you know, how basically I was relating to things before and after these, these, um, these huge apex traumas. And man, just looking at that data, I was like, Oh crap. Like I do have PTSD. I really, cause I, I'd been diagnosed with it, but like, I finally accepted that I actually had it. And, Mm -hmm. and then that was, you know, once again, it's just like you, I think when we're suffering, um, we're, it's just so hard to see a way out of anything. And this is where suicide comes in, you know, and, and, and this is where, you know, something I'm super not proud of, but I'm absolutely willing to talk about it is because it happens to a lot of people, myself included, you you know, from the outside, people looking in would say, she's pulled herself up by her bootstraps and look at her. She's got this beautiful family and she has a job and she's quote unquote happy. And I was hanging on just, you know, really close to killing myself more than once. Um, And for me, that's the, that's the biggest tragedy is there are so many people, you know, in my, and the privilege of be- getting to tell my story and talk to people about this, there are so many people who come up to me that are desperate for help. And they also have tried so many things. Like they've invested right. so much in their own healing. Right. And for me, that that is, you know, politically where I get very frustrated with the fact that MDMA is a schedule one drug. I, I yeah. think it's abhorrent. And also just I'm really concerned about accessibility. Like I said, I live in I live in the South. Most people here suffer from trauma. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh a lot of people here do not have the accessibility or the money to afford, you know, regular therapy, let alone what the cost that will be of this type of therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really hoping to help in some way within my lifetime to make sure that people that are seeking this type of therapy can find access to it. It's mm-hmm. it's just so important to me. And this is what, this is some of the work you're doing through your psychedelic society, New Orleans Psychedelic Society, right? That's- yes, I mean, what we're yeah, with the psychedelic society, things have slowed down a bit because of COVID. So we've done a lot of our meetings and stuff online until it'll be safe again to meet in person. Yeah. But before then, you know, we were very lucky to have several, you know several dozens of people at least each month if not more meet with us and we'd have someone talk about a specific topic with psychedelics or we'd do a book club and discuss a book it's more for us to raise awareness of these medicines and what's happening you know within not just the current legislation so not just looking at that but just in general like what has been happening historically with these medicines Um, because I think just raising awareness so many people have no idea they hear this and they think it's just some weird stuff yeah and it's not i mean it's i mean people were doing this you know for a long time before the it what what, was it in the 70s that they made it a schedule one drug like or 85 i think is when they actually did um but yeah it was it's this isn't anything quote unquote brand new but if for uh, for the majority of Americans, it will seem yes. like it's brand new. And, and we should probably mention it to make it clear for people who don't have experience with MDMA, 
uh, or things like psilocybin. These are very different substances. What they uh, what they share is the that they both produce a very strong altered state of uh, of consciousness, and they both uh, seem to be extremely therapeutically useful. But uh, MDMA is very different. Um, uh, psilocybin is a, a more uh, more of a psychedelic drugs that uh, induces kind of visual sort of semi hallucinations or hallucinations. Um, uh, and induces sort of a sense of oneness and connection with the world, and uh, but it also has kind of a properties uh, of um, can pr- produce some paranoid feelings in 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 some, especially if the context isn't right and all that. MDMA, on the other side, on the other hand, is uh, uh, the is, is doesn't produce hallucinations you just mm-hmm. produce a sense of connect connectedness a sense of love kind of a um uh, it reduces anger it, it it reduces fear it produces a sense of being very connected especially especially to yourself and to other people absolutely it's a very very interpersonal drug so maybe if you could give us a little bit of your insight on these two Again, when we talk about the mechanisms of change and how MDMA works, uh, a big one uh, with regards to trauma is the kind of a fear reduction that it allows you, you're not as avoidant, you're not as scared of your your memories, and then you can have the experience of actually meeting those memories, meeting, you know, yourself and your, your, your emotional reactions that are associated with these memories. And it also allows you a, a, a sense of connection with others mm-hmm. that you do not experience outside MDMA, or lots of people don't experience outside of the MDMA. So the other mechanism of change that that people talk about is this kind of interpersonal connect connecting uh, with with other people. And then you have mentioned before. Uh, you have mentioned before that your therapists have been extremely kind and that you developed very safe bond with them. And so if we talk about these two, I don't know whether you see them as one or whether these are like slightly different because the fear reduction is is cast in a more individualistic terms, mm-hmm. you know. But, but MDMA is really like very strongly a relationship healing medication yeah and i would say i think one of the ways to for me personally is i've always felt like a very loving person but it wasn't until those sessions when i did have that fear reduction and i was able to really reprocess and reframe a lot of this stuff that i actually feel self-love and Mm self-compassion and in doing that it's like once you kind of feel it for yourself, it's so much easier to access it truly for everyone around for everyone you. Else. And also to feel, like I said, those immense amounts of empathy for the people in your life. Like mm. after this, like, it, you know, my good friends always tease me because I'm like, I see the people around me struggling more as a manifestation of their traumas than I do as just a bad person now, mm. you mm. know? Mm. And for me, because of that, it's like I can relate to all kinds of people that before I could never relate to because now I just see the same thing. Like, it, you know, it's puzzle pieces, like how they've come to be in this place where they are in their lives. Mm. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, it, it is. I was very, once again, like I'm extremely fortunate. I had a very supportive family unit. Um, my partner and I have been together now for 17 years and we have a young son that we co-parent with two other men. So my son has three fathers. And so I was very, very lucky. I had this family that was willing to help take on, you know, help me with my child and also really support me through this therapy. And once again, these are really important things because I'm not coming out of this with all these revelations and going back into a very toxic environment. I was in a very supportive environment. And within that, I mean, I felt in love with my life, like mm -hmm. <laughs> head over heels. Like I felt feeling presence, awareness, um, this truth that I found within there had released me from the guilt of the past and allowed me to acknowledge the greatness in my life in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that I think is where you're talking about the interconnectedness because it wasn't just like, oh, I'm fixed. Everything's good. I'm good. It was like, I'm fixed. And oh my God, my heart is busting open right. for this life that I have. I have the most beautiful life Amazing. that has been here with me the whole time, mm -hmm. but I couldn't no. access it. Right. No. Oh my God. And that to me is like, why? I just want the, everyone to have the option Lord. to get this therapy. Lori, you know, oh my gosh, you speak with such clarity, Lori. I can't, <laughs> you know, I can't find words for how clear everything you say is. Do you think that you, you've been this clear before MDMA assisted therapy as well, or do you think MDMA assisted therapy brought some, some more clarity to this, to the way you talk, everything? I mean, Res I resonates, you know, I think that MDMA therapy allowed me to access so much within me that had been blocked that it was just like a channel of all these things, if that makes sense. Like before, okay. it, it's it's almost just like the repression that we do yeah. when we're ill represses yeah. every part of us. It oppress yeah. represses the way that we communicate the way that yeah. we feel things yeah. and to have yeah. that kind of blasted open mm -hmm. i mean it's just been like i said it saved my life it you know and and i just want to reiterate i'm not a person that goes around being like this is the thing for you yeah yeah for sure for people sure. did that to me and it was so damaging when the thing didn't work right. um but i believe the capacity of this medicine is so positive and and it will if given the opportunity i think most people would have a positive change if they were able to take this medicine you know um i wholeheartedly believe that and i'm really interested in how as a community we can develop like levels of care where people have access to this and whether that means we do it in groups so it's more affordable i'm yeah. really interested in that because while i had this incredible situation with two very loving therapists. Um, I don't know if that's going to be accessible for everybody. So I'm interested in alternate forms of this that still allow integration, which is so important. And, and, and just like for people to have a community to also go to, um, because it is, once you do this, you know, for me, when I finished it, it was really interesting because being the first person in New Orleans, you know, there weren't, there was no one here to talk to. <laughs> specifically about this experience. Um, but I found people in other places that had reached out to me, which was really beautiful. And having that community also is really important. And it reminds me just of the strength of community and right. how we really do need to take care of each other. And right. once again, that feeling comes from this, this healing. When you heal yourself or you are in this, the process of healing yourself, because I don't consider myself healed. I consider this a lifelong process of doing this. But comparatively, I'm... I'm not even close to the person I was before. Right, right. You know? 
Yeah, that's wonderful, wonderful to hear. And, you know, to move this agenda forward, we really need to, to move it forward in a fully legal way. We really need a lot of research as fast as possible mm -hmm. to show to show that this works, to show whether it works, let's be from the objective scientific point of view. We already have so much uh, evidence that it works. Your testimony is so powerful. And, uh, and, you know, so if anybody listening here wants to advance this agenda, MAPS is doing wonderful, wonderful work right now. They have been doing wonderful work for years to bring this therapy. So please support the research that MAPS is doing. It's a wonderful organization with, uh, with the mandate of bringing public good uh, uh, and, uh, and the mandate of making this world a better place for, for people. And I, I would, I would hope for other creatures and the, the whole, you know, the whole ecosystem. But that's uh, that's a little bit of a stretch from what <laughs> we are, we we are talking. But that's, you know, that's the real agenda. The real agenda here is yeah. to save this this beautiful the life planet. on Earth. Yeah. Because once you realize that this, we live in a paradise. We have a paradise that we don't even know whether it exists anywhere else. Nothing near. And at the same time, whether it's probably to a great extent through trauma, a lot of people have such negative lenses, and 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 you know, and and we get into these fights and these polarizations and these disconnections that continue eroding our own foundation. Mm -hmm. This is this to me is unreal. We are such smart, beautiful species. And we engage in such horrific practices, such horrific ways of living, or at least too much of that, because, you know, it's not, we're not doing well. The planet is right now not doing well. So. Oh, no. Yeah. And, and I think that the, beyond just MDMA, but just the power of all these psychedelics really do have the ability to... Um, expand our consciousness into understanding how interconnected we all are and how it is our responsibility to take care of this planet. Like, right. we come from this planet. This is right. <laughs> where we are. So we should take care of her, him, whatever should... you want to call it, the what's planet. Your, <laughs> what, what's your personal opinion on, on, on the role that psychedelics, I know people, people within the community differ on this, but what's your personal opinion on the role that psychedelics can play in the long run in saving uh, ecosystem? I mean, I think that they could be one of the most valuable tools that we've ever seen in our lifetime. And the reasoning is because, you know, psychedelics allow us to face a lot of the issues or traumas if we choose to do so. And once we do that, we stop reacting from those traumas. And if people were able to not react from their traumas, so much of what we see in the world that's so negative and detrimental, I think would really change significantly. You know, when you see a lot of these larger wars or, or you know, even what corporations are doing to the planet, they're not even, they're thinking from places of greed or scarcity or, you know, ego-driven, in my opinion, places. And if they were able to have these, you know, psychedelic experiences, you know, altered states that allow them to connect to their deepest core self of love and understand like that is truly right. what we all want. It'd be a right. lot harder to do these horrendous acts, in my opinion. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it, I think it'll be an incredible tool and I look forward to it. I see that legislation is constantly changing, especially around psilocybin. Right. And I think that there's so much promise. Um, 
you know, I personally have a very tender spot in my heart for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I think for people suffering from PTSD, it is probably the best uh, psychedelic or in entheogen available just because of the brain functioning with the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. Um, but, you know, maybe I'm proven wrong. Well, I love being proven wrong. <laughs> well, I, you know, from what I understand of it, I would totally agree with you. And another aspect of uh, about MDMA-assisted therapy comparing to other psychedelics, that's very predictable comparing to other psychedelics. You know exactly what's going to happen and you know uh, that, you know, the, the experience more or less that the person might have. The variations are much smaller than with other psychedelics. Um, I wonder if you can um, just go back in, in, in a, a couple of questions. What, what would be, what was your, like, what was the most unexpected uh, things that happened in that therapy for you? Something that surprised you the most? Well, something that surprised me the most actually happened a few months after the therapy. And so okay. I would come home and we have dogs here, which my partner is watching so we don't hear on this podcast, <laughs> but I love dogs. And when I would come home, I would hear my dogs come up to the front door because I have wooden, wooden floors. And every day when I would hear them run up to the front door to greet me, I would feel overwhelming anxiety and panic. And this was just something I experienced forever. And I never really questioned it until after MDMA therapy, oh. I started being like, wait, why am I feeling this? I'm having this feeling. Why am I feeling this? And one day, I mean, and it was so bad that like, if I knew my partner was coming home, sometimes I would like circle the block to let him get home first so that oh. he would let the dogs out. So okay. I wouldn't have that feeling coming my in my house. Um, and so one day, this is probably, I want to say, about three months after I finished my last, you know, psycho um, MDMA therapy session, um, I come home and I am going to the door and I hear the dogs and I feel this feeling come up and I hear this voice almost in my head go, don't forget about the dogs. And I kind of questioned that. And then I realized in that moment that when I had walked into my mother's house and discovered that she had two small dogs and the entire time the background noise was this, was their clicking feet on the ground the oh. entire time that I was experiencing that um That, that anxiety when your dogs were coming home? Yes. No, and guess. so my body had in some kind of way, my brain and body had said that noise is what you heard as you saw the worst thing you hopefully will ever see in your life. So my physiological body was responding to it when right. I would hear it with my own dogs. I would have never put that together, mm. right? Like never put it, you know, and this comes after like not having done any other kind of, you know, psych psychedelic psychotherapy for months, this realization comes and in understanding it, it's like I stopped it from happening. You by, actually connected the dots yes, and, like, and the anxiety stopped? By like just letting myself feel the whole anxiety and ah. understanding why I felt that anxiety. It's like I don't have that anymore. Mm. Like it's, it's I, crazy guess, to me. That's crazy, no? <laughs> I mean, but it's beautiful, right? Like, that's like turning a switch, like click. Totally. Yeah. Things and, connect, switch is turned off. And and when I say that's one of the most mind-blowing things is, is because that happened after I'd finished. And like, this is something that had been bothering me for a decade. And I'd never right. even thought to question why I was right. feeling those feelings. I was just... Yeah, you just you just experienced that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Automatic. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah, no reflection on that just happening. Yeah. Have you it, felt... That's pretty, pretty... Yeah. <laughs> Any other experiences of that of that sort? Or? Um, 
I mean, I think that there have just been other like radical improvements just in the way that I've been able to function in my life, like especially considering my personal relationships. And we did a lot of work in those sessions regarding my rape and and just in general, like reconnecting to my body and allowing myself to really be present for that and to feel, uh, you know, for for me and perhaps for a lot of people who suffer from um, from sexual assault, there's there's just this shame that comes along with it. And there's mm-hmm. a silencing often of that story. And so for me to be able to tell that story and feel very held and feel very witnessed in my in that psychedelic state um, allowed me to access a lot of the things that I hadn't been able to access regarding just like the the sexual trauma that happened there. And so coming out of that, like, uh, you know, my relationships improved drastically, like okay. not just love relationships, but also like my sexual relationships improved drastically because I was able to work through that kind of sexual assault trauma that I had mm-hmm. avoided even acknowledging for years. Um, and I think that those are, those are some of like, you know, for me, it's such a, I guess I'm, I'm more of, for lack of a better term, I'm more of an interesting case study because I came in there with like so, so many things <laughs> wrong with me, for lack of a better term, um, that the amount of changes in me seemed prolific because it was like so many different things I was getting a new perspective on and I was, you know, working to heal in a way that I'd never even necessarily acknowledged them before. Mm-hmm those things that you call wrong are protective mechanisms that your your system develops to to protect yourself from this horrificness that could destroy you completely but now definitely and you know and you see this constantly or i see it in my friends all the time it's like they've experienced these things and it's they they build this armor around themselves to protect them Mm -hmm. but then it's like later they're trying to like go for a swim you can't go for a swim you're gonna drown in the armor but like they yeah, it, it's nice, impossible nice for them to take it's hard for them to take the armor nice off. they don't even know they're wearing it you right. know they're at the beach like why can't i enjoy yeah. everything and it's like because you're wearing a suit of armor right. <laughs> you yeah. know but it takes a lot of trust and in this case like for me it wasn't it wasn't something i could even begin to understand like it, it, it i guess it's hard for me to put it into words because it sounds silly in some points but it's like i didn't even understand that i was wearing any kind of armor right right and you didn't you, you mentioned the silencing power of shame so it's almost oh so much so much there's so much and shame is such a it, i mean it's such a powerful emotion and it is something that keeps so many people locked into these states right. where they are incapable of accessing further and and there is like the you know this is always what i I, you know the trick that i tell people like when i'm trying to convince them that they really need to like go to therapy or something i'm like the fear that you have over facing these things is so much greater than actually facing the thing that's the paradox is like you're so afraid of it but like it's the fear of of it than the actual thing i was just like and you just have to trust that you're going to get through it. But for people like myself before this, people like therapists told me stuff like that. It was in one ear out the other. I didn't even, I didn't even feel it because it was just like, if you're just trying to survive, you're just trying to survive. You know how much energy goes into trying to survive? That's that's what I was just thinking. That's a very energy costly to keep those walls. Oh, so much. I I like the, the metaphor of a dam that the water is building up and you have to strengthen and strengthen the dam so it doesn't break because it seems that if it, that dam breaks 
you oh, drown totally. it for sure. Exactly. And also just like there's so many other things that feed into that in just, you know, society. The idea of we're supposed to have it together. The idea of like, what does it look like to be successful? What does it look right. like to admit these things? Like, once again, like, I'm very lucky that I live in a family that is okay with the fact that I can talk about my mom doing these things. Um, mm-hmm. But there are some people who suffer in silence because their their family's still alive. The, per- the perpetrator in their life is still there or you know mm-hmm. it's very yeah. it's very complicated yeah. and i think though ultimately the healing does have to come from within and that's yeah. one of the most beautiful things of this therapy right. is because it's so client led that the therapists are allowing me to access my own right. healing this isn't an outside thing of like they're healing me this is me healing right. me that's great and, and i assume you're a big proponent of a client-led client-centered therapy absolutely you not, know not not manualized treatments uh, uh, using mdma or anything like that no and i think it is it's just so important that we treat individuals as individuals and we stop trying to classify things you know put them into this binary or good or bad this or that and just like allow right. the experience to be tailored to what the person right. needs for yeah. their yeah. best self yeah. yeah yeah well i don't see how uh, people's hearts you know will automatically open when listening listening to you laurie you know this is you, you, you you're providing such beautiful beautiful connected resonant account at least that's how i feel about it um if if we go slightly one one, just one more time to the mechanisms of change sure so you talked uh you talk about you know the the memories as in images and you know remembering it as an image as the verbal what was said what you see you know the smells so the sensory memories but then there's the aspects of the memories that is in your body how your memories live as all kinds of discomforts whether it's nausea or tight chest or uh, horrific muscle tensions or whatever it is in your body so then you know all uh when you were coming to connect with yourself in the MDMA session, could, could you talk a little bit more about those aspects of, you know, remembering as in visual, remembering as in auditory, remembering as in smells, and then remembering as a this nonverbal sensory physical experience so one of my experience is with the within the third session was i really wanted to talk about my sexual assault and i had discussed with my uh, therapy team before that that there were certain i was a yoga teacher in my past and there were certain yoga poses that if i physically put my body into those poses i would immediately go into a panic so this had nothing to do with my brain right like as far as like my i wasn't thinking about bad things i would just physically feel something and immediately be put into you know struggle terror that and so you know when I began to tell them in the therapy session while I was on MDMA, I began to tell them the story of, of my rape. And I was so dejected when I told that story that it was almost alarming in, in a sense because with the other things I would have been able to tell these stories and almost like, like I said before, embody these experiences in a way that allowed me to reframe them and stay present in my body. Yeah. And when I was telling the story of my rape, it was almost like I was still sim- like disassociating from my body somewhat. And so uh, at one point, we had made the decision as the group that I would try to put myself in one of these physical positions to see oh, what okay. would happen. 
So once again, this is like my own, my own therapy session. This during your MDMA. During uh, my MDMA session. Okay. I, I'm wanting to do this. So nobody was like, go do yes, yoga. Yes, yes, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also I would love to add that like, I felt comfortable and had been a practitioner. So this wasn't physically dangerous for me yeah, to do. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, get up from the couch, go and there's yoga mats there. And I kind of stretch out a little bit and I decide that I'm going to um, try to put myself in plow pose. And plow pose is when you're on your back and you bring your legs up over your head so your knees okay. are close to your face. Okay. Uh, so it's a very constricting pose. It's very, you know, your body is kind of bent over and you're on your back. You're, you're basically pinning yourself down for okay. lack of a better okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure, sure. And so um, I, you know, because that was a pose that I would avoid terribly. And um, I, with my therapy team right next to me, here I am, you know, high on MDMA. <laughs> And, and there's I, always we have to we, to make sure there's always two therapists there, there for, two. for yeah. safety reasons. And, yeah. and so uh, I go and I, I put myself into this position. And I mean, the minute I put myself into the position, it was like flipping a switch in my body. I, I was immediately even even be, on MDMA, I was immediately inundated what? with shame okay. and fear and I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt so um, just like almost an anxiety attack, honestly. Yeah. And so I come out of it and, you know, uh, Sherry was holding my hand. She was right next to me. And she said, you know, what is the feeling need? And before I could even think, like I didn't have time to like right. come up with my answer. I just said, it needs to be heard. Right. She's like, okay. And she's like, <clears throat> we're here. We are here. We are hearing you. We believe you. Oh, and just like having a person tell you that when you've when you've had this thing that you this trauma that no one had heard before or maybe they'd heard but you didn't feel like you were heard um and seeing witnessed was so beautiful and it was almost as she said those words it was like a almost like a ripple through my body of just like me exhaling and just like a relief like a soul relief if that makes sense like i just felt so held and I felt so seen in the way that I never had felt concerning my rape. Like I had never felt like I had, you know, people supporting me. And so it was just, I mean, talk about physical embodiment. It was not, there was no, let me ask myself how I feel. It was just like, this is what I need. And when I got what I needed, it was an immediate, like my whole body just was like, okay. And then I stayed down there and I went into that pose two more times and it was uncomfortable, but it wasn't unbearable. And I didn't have any more panic attacks. You know, it was probably uncomfortable just because I, I'd been laying on on the bed for most of the day. But I mean, like it was, you know, those are the moments where once again, like this is something no one would ever do in traditional therapy. And Mm -hmm. I have to stress that. Like most of the time in traditional therapy, a therapist isn't allowed to even touch you legally in the United States. They can't even give you, hold your hand or hug you. Um, I'm not sure if it's like that in Canada or not. Um, But so to have, of course, beforehand to have set the parameters of consent to say, I'm okay with a person holding my hand. I'm okay with you putting your arm around my back, you know, to set those parameters ahead of time and to have them retractable at any time in the session. I could always change my mind and say, nope. 
you know, um, but to have that and to then feel that level of support, which is what I particularly needed. That's not saying what everybody would need, but for me to have that level of support in the way that was so customized to me was like, you know, it's here we go. We're shooting right at the heart of healing where you were giving the elixir of what we actually have been craving for this particular thing. And I mean, uh, embodiment. Yes, absolutely. Beyond you know, the, the, the brain completely in, in the physical embodiment. So. Lori speaks so beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm just so uh, passionate about this. Oh I, I, my, I, oh I really, you know, for me, this is, this saved my life. I can't, I can't stress that enough. And, and I really, I think a lot of people who go through the trials and that have the privilege of this experience, um, understand that it is partly their responsibility for others and not to say that people should have to share their stories if they're not comfortable but like it is our responsibility to let people know that you know this is a legitimate therapy that shows more promise than anything i've heard of in my lifetime for ptsd right 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 and that's what research seems to the preliminary research that is coming seems to be showing the same um wow laurie do you you have a few more minutes or you need to run? No, I have a few more minutes. Yeah, okay. if you have some more okay. questions. Yeah, yeah I, ha- I have a couple of questions. Um, have you experienced uh, with MDMA, uh, unlike, you know, psilocybin, MDMA, um, some people experience a little bit of a, a mood dip, uh, uh, you know, a day or two days after, a little bit of a depletion, a little bit maybe even uh, of a depressive kind of feelings. Uh, research seems the researcher seems to be saying that if the setting is right and if it's done properly then that's not a big deal how was it for you that i would say for me i i kept a real i kept journals of all this stuff because i'm actually working on a book about this experience um and for me following the first and third sessions absolutely no depression or anything like that um in fact i felt like wonderful after those sessions. Um, After the second session, I did feel depressed, but I don't think it had anything to do with the um, me having taken the MDMA. I think it was because I was reconnecting to those feelings and I was finally allowing myself to feel things. And I literally for that after that session, I cried for a couple of days, but it wasn't the kind of like, oh, I'm lost in the depths of sorrow. It was a very cathartic beautiful honoring my grief in a way that I had never been able to do before. I think we're often afraid to honor our grief and we're afraid to cry and we're afraid to have these emotions. And for me, it was so powerful to allow myself to be sad and to just be in my sadness. Um, And I don't, I don't think it had anything to do with like a dip in my receptors or um, anything like that. it was more, of, more of a sadness, more of a, of a sadness that you... It was, a gr- it was definitely a grief. It was it, yeah. I was dealing with just like finally grieving these horrible things that had, had been occurring in my life and just like allowing space for that, which to me, um, obviously when you're in the middle of that and you're crying, it's hard, but I always felt it was productive. I didn't question it. I didn't say like, oh, I wish I hadn't right. done this right. or anything like that. Great, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, on the other hand... Uh, so Gould Dolan, I don't know, do you know Gould Dolan? I'm she's at sure. Johns Hopkins. She's doing a okay. basic, basic sort of research uh, with uh, MDMA and oxytocin and, you know, and wonderful, wonderful research. Um, uh, so they, they did some research on, uh, uh, with the MDMA and they found that there is a little, that the levels of oxytocin because MDMA 
stimulates the production of oxytocin, and oxytocin is a bonding hormone. So it's the hormone that want, make, makes us want to be close to to other people. Oxytocin is the uh, the the hormone that. Um, is uh, there's a lot of it early on in life, and and uh, and that that's that's when we develop uh, our relational patterns, mm-hmm. and then in adulthood, oxytocin levels drop. So those relational patterns that we develop earlier uh, are much less flexible. So we have uh, we have very little, much less flexibility in changing those patterns. That's why those early patterns of relate of relating that we acquire during childhood and adolescence tend to persist. We tend to repeat ourselves in, in the way we feel about others and relate to others. And then also she's doing some amazing research showing that MDMA can actually reopen. Did you hear about those hypotheses? Reopening the critical period for social bonding through MDMA. So it reopens that kind of window for social bonding. Mm-hmm. So that's again. This is the relational hypothesis that right. it allows us to relate now in a different, new way. It's almost like we reopen that window for a period of time. We experience a, a new way of relating, and then we can redo our. If if our relational patterns are not very good, don't serve us very well, we we can develop healthier patterns. And 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 Gould. Gould's estimate was, of course, this is just an estimate, that the afterglow effect of, of an MDMA uh, administration uh, in humans might last up to about a month. Okay. That the, the, the oxytocin levels are higher, are elevated after one administration for about a month. So the, do, do you remember any sort of afterglowy sort oh, of definitely. that these still weren't yeah. quite? Oh, no, no, definitely. My, my um, partner is so funny because after the first, after the first session, like, um, I, he was like, he said, I was like an alien rediscovering everything in the world for the first time. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. I would literally be like, I'd be standing in the kitchen and I, I'd have yeah. my coffee and I'd taste it and I'd be like, coffee, coffee is so delicious. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And I'd just be like, but have you ever really noticed just how delicious it is? And he's like, yeah, I have. And then we'd be someplace and I'd be like, do you hear those birds? Do you hear him singing? Like, isn't that incredible? The birds listen. And he's just like, he loved it because he's very into that kind of like slow down, right. enjoy. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. He, thank God. Like he's been, he is like the yin to my yang, right? So well, here I was this very, um, you know, very hyper vigilant, you know, type A personality, um, you know, aggressor, I would say in some ways, not in a negative way. And he's very passive and very slow. And, and just like, so for him to see those changes in me, he was like, yeah, he, he even said, he's like, it's the cutest thing. You're walking around, like you're just rediscovering your life. And I think that that is absolutely, yes, part of it, you know, and I'm fascinated by, by these studies they're doing with MDMA. Um, There was a book that just came out. um, I think it's called Good Chemistry by Judas. Oh, I gotta look. Oh, that's it. by you know Julie Holland. Julie Holland, yes, yes Julie yes, Holland, yes, and I just yes. read that, and it's fantastic, yeah. and it talks about a lot of what we're what we're hitting on here about right. the connection to self and how that grows to the connection to the planet and to the right. universe, um, yeah. and it's beautiful. And she talks about some of the studies and and some of the studies they've been doing with people on the um, autism spectrum with MDMA, which once again is is all of this to me is so promising, and. Um, I'm just so excited to see that 
this research is happening and that people are getting getting an opportunity to participate in things that um, for people with PTSD that could actually mean the difference between life and death, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Great. And do you remember like a, a time period? Do you remember that you kind of became more less MDMA-ish after, you know, a year later, you just feel like, okay, definitely there's no effects, but it lasted for... Uh, it, I don't know. I wouldn't. After, I wouldn't no, say that I knew no. exactly because it was just so such a rapid change for me yeah. that it's hard. But it I changed will, everything. Yeah. It changed everything. But I will <clears throat> say, like, I, in all seriousness, I mm -hmm. don't know if I would have survived the pandemic had I not done MDMA therapy, because oh, yeah. of my hyper vigilance and my fear, and right. just seeing so many people in my own community. Um, I, you know, I, I've had many friends that have lost immediate family members to um, COVID and seeing just how much it's affected the population of the South in general yeah. um, uh, and knowing and having a lot of friends that have, you know, we, we make the joke that like most people we know right now are not mentally well, ha ha ha, but it's very true. Like there is a lot of anguish happening and I, I try, it's very, it's, it's hard for me because it's like, um, it's a beautiful thing that like I've changed so much. It's hard to access that part of me that was absolutely so fearful of everything. But I have pondered like, how would I have reacted to the pandemic had I not had this amazing experience? Would I have killed myself? Right. You yeah. know, because when you're that afraid and then you add the trauma of this pandemic that is happening on a worldwide level and the isolation of it right the complete isolation for a lot of people like to me those are the recipes for suicide is you know isolation and depression you know is a, is a big one or isolation and fear um and so i feel very uh fortunate you know as far as after effects i mean just hand like my partner even said like the way that you've handled the pandemic has been incredible because we've been able to really just find our own groove and really practice gratitude daily. And in that practice, honor the fact that like this is what's happening and we can't necessarily control it, but we can control how we react to it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Wonderful, Lori. A couple more, a couple, I have a couple more yeah, questions. Yeah, that's fine. So in terms of, you know, research that is coming out is seems to be great your account is just a testimony to how powerful this therapy what the, the, the powerful potential of this therapy um there is uh, uh there is a, a little bit of a, a, a stigma societal stigma about that and a, a large large uh, proportion of people are not open because of the war on drugs and all the indoctrination and all kinds of all kinds of historical things uh, people uh, what there's a couple of questions related to that one is um, in terms of ethics and how how do we not screw it up in terms of you know how when we bring this therapy to the world, what do we have to be careful about in your mind? That's one question. And a related question is, what is the kind of a public messaging that you think should be, what are the, 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 the messages not for people who already understand this and who are on board for doing this therapy and bringing it, and, but for people who, 
who, who are skeptical, what sort of public messages would be most useful to advance this, to bring this to the people that need it and who suffer from, from trauma and disconnection and relationship difficulties? Well, I think in the first question, to me, the, the biggest thing to not mess it up is to guarantee as much accessibility as possible. Accessibility. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in doing so, you know, also have a some type of way that there is um, a system of checks and balances so no one is abusing the power of, of either, um, of I would say, of being an, administer, an administer of these medicines. Um, you know, just historically speaking, there is often a time when people um, are able to perform in a way that they feel like they're healing other people, that it can become a negative experience if it's not kept in check. And we've even seen that, unfortunately, within these, within these systems, we've seen abuses already. Um, and so I think there needs to be some type of uh, system to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, that I don't know if therapy pairs is going to be the be most cost-effective way, but just some type of framework so that we can make sure that people who are going into these therapies are not only getting the best um, help that they can, but that everything is consensual and no one's being abused. All right. um, uh, those would be some of the first things. Uh, and obviously, like I said, financial accessibility, not just right, accessibility, right. but Absolutely. financial accessibility to people right. is is paramount. And looking at, obviously, these these trials were structured specifically for the FDA in order to get this drug descheduled. But once we are able to move past that, really looking at community care models and so how we could practice within the community, because I think also allowing people to share the, this experience will build in a network of support for them. Because a lot of people coming into psychedelic therapy Therapy may not be coming from a place where they are supported. And if they're practicing with other people, they have almost a built-in community for that. So I'm really excited to see what they're doing with kind of the group psilocybin studies and also to see what might happen with MDMA in the future as far as if it could be more accessible. And it might not be. It might only work best when it's on a one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two basis. Um, so those are some of the things that I think of. And there are many people, especially that are working with MAPS, that are working on that and talking about the level of accessibility um, and, and making sure that communities of color do not get left out of this conversation. Right. You know, that's something I have to always acknowledge. Like, I am a white woman, and so I do have a certain level of privilege that other people do not have. Um, and I, I do think that it is important that this is looked at from a perspective of all people and not just one demographic. Um, and as far as people who are on the fence and, and are very skeptical, maybe, um, you know, this is a bipartisan issue. This is an yep. issue of saving people's lives. Yep. And I think n almost everyone in the world has known someone, if not themselves, that has suffered a trauma or a traumatic event and who may be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And so for those people, I say, you know, um, to me, this could be the difference between life and death. And, uh, what what is the what is the price of a human's life right like what do we say this is immoral or this is illegal like no there is n there is nobody getting hurt by this this is a therapy just like other drug therapies have been um if you support the use of ssris or anything like that like this is truly not that different from now in mechanism yes in results yes but it, it's another drug um no. I'm a, I personally believe in cognitive liberty, so I think people should be able to do whatever they choose. Yeah. Um, uh, and that being said, like I, of course, support the use of this for the reasons that it's being um, put out there at the time. Um, I think that it is 
you know, going to benefit the most people if MDMA is used for psychotherapy sessions in the model that is present right now or in a model similar, um, only because I do feel that the, those, the therapy aspect is just as important as the MDMA. MDMA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said before, it, you know, I do wish that there were a magic pill that did this, but it's not that. It's a process. It's an entire process of really excavating th- these issues and reframing them and allowing that ability to change the way that you perceive your world and for you to be able to just embody yourself and and live in the present, which is where you have the most capacity for joy in your life is in the present moment. This, yeah, this really is a therapy, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, Laurie. Uh, I can't imagine a better person writing writing a book about this, Laurie. This is was like great, great. <laughs> Thank you. you. Again, I'm repeating myself, but you have so much clarity. Uh, tell, tell us uh, maybe the last question I have. If you'd like to add anything else, please feel free. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about your book. Do you have, your, do you have a title? I'm still working on the title. I've gone through a couple of ideas and it's in its preliminary phase. I have a first draft finished, but a lot of it is, um, you know, diary entries and things that are, for me, very descriptive, but I really need to put it together in a way for a person that is coming from the outside. Specifically what we talked about, Derek, is like people who are looking at this in a skeptical way and have absolutely no um, common knowledge of MDMA, I want this to be very approachable to them. Um, because I do think that, you know, I believe, I 100% believe in the capacity of this to completely revolutionize modern um, uh, psychotherapy. And so for me, it, you know, I'm writing this not just to tell my own story, but I'm writing this in the hopes that it can help Uh, you know, usher in some of the social change that we so desperately need when it comes to the way that we treat people who are, you know, suffering from uh, mental illnesses. You know, thank God we're moving towards a phase where people are much more apt to admit when they're having problems, which is a beautiful thing because a lot of people have suffered in silence for a long time. And I do believe that another way to change skeptical people is to tell them these true stories of the actual individuals who have done this the data is wonderful and like for me i love the data i i'm a huge supporter of science in general um and I, I find the data striking and I find it really hopeful. But for a lot of people, it's just numbers. It's not yes. people. And so yeah. the more of us who have experienced healing and have or have not, I, I mean, I'm interested in the stories of people who haven't experienced the same thing I have. I want to hear everyone's story. I think there's room for all of them. Um, but from my personal experience and the majority of people I've talked to, um, I mean, everyone in New Orleans that I've talked to that has participated that I know of has had very similar beautiful results like I have um, and they're and they are a diverse group of people and so that to me is very promising once again these are smaller studies but I think when you look at somebody like myself and why and why my story has relevance especially now it's it's the joke of like if this works for me <laughs> like this will probably work for you too <laughs> you know so that's 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 kind of how I look at it but um, I'm hoping to have um, for my second draft finished before like by the midsummer and then start shopping it around you know so if anyone's interested and or knows an agent that you would recommend that works well with these types of memoirs i definitely 
um, love to have somebody reach oh, out. Oh, I don't yeah. think you'll have any problems. <laughs> Holy. Hey, so where? I'm just looking at your website here. And where could people sign up? I would like to sign up uh, to your some sort of a mailing list or something like that so that I have updates from uh, from what you're doing and also uh, to to get your book. No, absolutely. Um, I really need to put together something there. Anybody can just shoot me. There is a section on my website, uh, laurie-chipton.com, that says contact me. Just shoot me an email. And as I put together a better mailing list, I'll make sure that you're included in that. Um, Yeah. And and keep you abreast of the things that we're doing down here as far as also the Psychedelic Society. You know, it's exciting stuff. (laughs) So Laurie's website is laurie with just i dash tipton.com laurie-tipton.com and uh, I uh, look forward to uh, to reading your book Laurie and to connecting with you maybe in person at some point somewhere there in the world as well if if this is uh, destined to ever happen yes uh, I would love those- that and I, and I really, I just want to take a moment and say thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I think it's incredible that people are interested and willing to listen to these stories and want to share them with the world. And I really appreciate all that you're doing because it really, at this point, it, it is life-changing for a lot of people to hear these stories. So thank you for all the hard work you're doing as well. Well, I can't uh, stress how much I appreciate you, uh, you, you agreeing to be here and you sharing your, your story. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Let's talk again sometime soon. <laughs> yes, yes. Be well. Enjoy. Enjoy the beautiful life. Okay. Take care. <laughs>